0: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. You probably noticed that I have a scratchy voice. I am just getting over a respiratory illness and I also have my three-month-old in tow. So you're going to have a nice background of parenting sounds, um, namely a little baby coo and maybe a cry here and there. Hopefully it will not be too distracting. So if you're new to the podcast Welcome. For the last few months, I've been discussing the three instruments of education as described by Charlotte Mason in her 20 Principles. So children are whole persons, and so education shouldn't just develop one part of a person. The first instrument is atmosphere. I like to think of this as the social-emotional instrument of education. Kids learn from the relationships that they form with people and with things, and they learn best in their natural environment instead of an artificial one. Second instrument is discipline. And I like to think of this as the physical mental instrument. We educate the body and the mind through good habits, formed intentionally and thoughtfully, both habits of mind and body. Good habits include beautiful handwriting, memorizing multiplication tables, and being able to pay attention to the task at hand. The third instrument, the one we'll be discussing today, is life. You're listening to Simple Wonders, the podcast for parents who want to raise happy, curious, lifelong learners. I'm your host, Jessica Smith, certified family life educator and mama of four. Join me as we explore simple tools to nurture your child's heart and mind. When I first began studying Charlotte's volumes on education, I thought this tool meant that education is a lifelong pursuit. It's a lifestyle. Now, that may be true, but it's not what Charlotte meant when she said that education is a life. In her 20 Principles, Mason said, Saying education is a life, the need of intellectual and moral, as as, as well as physical sustenance is implied. The mind feeds on ideas. And therefore, children should have a generous curriculum. I had never thought of the mind and spirit as a living thing, one that needs daily nourishment, just like the body. But the more I've thought about it, I see the genius in what Charlotte taught. The mind is a living, growing organism. It needs nourishment to develop, just like the body. We see evidence of minds that are starved, desperately seeking nourishment. We also see evidence of overfed but undernourished minds, ones that are fed on a diet of mental junk food. In her 20 principles, Charlotte expands on this idea of the mind being alive. She said, We hold that the child's mind is no mere sack to hold ideas but is rather, if the figure may be allowed, a spiritual organism with an appetite for all knowledge. This is its proper diet, with which it is prepared to deal, and which it can digest and assimilate as the body does foodstuffs. I've noticed that the popular belief in education is that the mind is a vessel or a sack. Now, we may not say it outright, but by the way that we educate children, it's kind of apparent that we think of it as an empty vessel or sack that needs to be filled with whatever we, the educators, decide the children need to know. But Charlotte rejects that idea and instead claims that the mind is like the body. I'm aware this analogy may seem cheesy or stretched a bit. But really, the more you think about it, the more it makes sense. Our spirit and mind aren't just a passive dead thing. They grow and mature just like our physical bodies do. So let's review a few facts about the body before we move on to the mind. Makes it a little bit easier to see this analogy. So the body grows and develops over time and consequently has different nutritional needs at different stages. It takes in the nutrients it needs at that time and discards the rest. Our body is best nourished on whole foods. We can't survive on small amounts of concentrated synthetic nutrients. If there's one thing we've learned in the field of nutrition over the last century, it's that whole foods are the best thing to nourish our bodies. We also can't survive on just one food source. We need a variety of fruits, vegetables, nuts, beans, meat, dairy, etc. And just like the body, our mind grows and has different needs for each stage. It is best nourished on a variety of living ideas, not just concentrated pills of information. So the big question that you're probably asking yourself is what exactly are ideas? And how do we as parents prepare a feast for our child's mind? Well, Charlotte said that the mind feeds on ideas, not information. She said that facts or information is to the mind, like sawdust is to the body. But what exactly is an idea and how is it different from information? She said that idea is more than an image or a picture. It is, so to speak, a spiritual germ endowed with a vital force, with power, that is, to grow and to produce after its kind. I like to think of ideas as fresh fruit. It contains a variety of nutrients that are what scientists call bioavailable, meaning the nutrients are in a form that is easy for the body to use. An apple is complex and it's delicious. Compare this to dry facts or information. They're like a supplement that has vitamins and minerals, but are not appetizing, contain no living elements, and most of all, it passes. a lot of it passes right through the body because it's in a form that's not easily used. If you plant an apple, most likely it will grow into a new apple tree. If you plant a vitamin, it will simply dissolve into the ground. So like an apple, living ideas are fed with more ideas and eventually grow to bear fruit. This imagery reminds me of the scripture in Alma about letting a seed be planted in your heart, then watering and tending it until it grows into a tree and bears fruit. I just thought that was amazing when I read that in Charlotte Mason's volumes and it reminded me so much of that scripture in Alma talking about faith which to me faith is a living idea. So speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well Jesus said if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee give me drink thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. Whosoever drinketh of this water. Shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And again, Jesus is talking about living ideas, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Word of God, or the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the original and most vital living idea our children will ingest. And it is not just something they will eat and it just passes right through them. It is, like he said, a living well springing up with life. And that is the same thing that Charlotte Mason is saying about all knowledge, all vital knowledge, that those ideas are things that will grow in our children and our children can feed them and add more ideas and it will grow and bear fruit. So remember that all knowledge is of God. Religious and moral ideas aren't the only things that we feed our children. Ideas include mathematical and scientific principles, language, music, art, and more. So pretty much anything that can take a hold of your mind and give you something to ponder on and digest. It took me a while to really understand the difference between ideas and mere information. So here are some more examples. Think back to your high school history class. You may have read in your history textbook that the California Gold Rush began in 1848 and lasted until 1855. Your textbook probably threw out some more numbers, like the fact that around 300,000 people migrated to the West in hopes of striking it rich. So compare that, those facts to the story of a young Jewish immigrant who came to San Francisco in the height of the Gold Rush. He listened to the miners complain of their pants falling apart, They desperately wanted a pair of pants that would last longer than a month. He went to work inventing a pair of pants that were made with strong cotton fabric, reinforced with double seams and metal grommets. The miners loved them, and they soon became popular all over the country, not just in California, not just for miners. That young man was Levi Strauss. And how about the story of a young woman who came with her husband to California and was baking dinner over the campfire when a miner approached her and offered her $5 in gold for one biscuit. For some perspective, that's about the same as $190 today. She gladly made the trade and continued selling dinners to hungry miners over the next couple of years. She saved up enough to open a restaurant and eventually a hotel. Another money-making venture during the gold rush was laundry service. Miners actually sent their dirty clothes to Hawaii and China to get them washed, then get them back six months later. Many women noticed this great opportunity and came to California to start laundry services, earning much more money than most of the gold miners did. So if I asked you what you remembered about the California gold rush from what I just talked about, what would you say? What will you ponder about later on? And what are you eager to tell a friend about? Is it the dates and statistics that I told you at the beginning, or is it the stories? A living idea piques your interest, inspires questions, and ignites emotions. Facts, on the other hand, pass right through your mind and are usually forgotten as quickly as you read them. In an attempt to help parents and teachers understand the importance of living ideas in education, Charlotte said, quote, give your child a single valuable idea, and you have done more for his education than you, if you had laid upon his mind the burden of bushels of information. And she continues, if the business of teaching be to furnish the child with ideas, Any teaching which does not leave him possessed of a new mental image has, by so far, missed its mark. Think about it. Are your child's school lessons giving them ideas that take hold of their mind, live in them, and give your child something to ponder about, think about, fascinates them, interests them, and just really ignites their imagination and curiosity? Because this should be the purpose of school lessons. To furnish the child's mind with fruitful ideas. Ones that will inspire imagination and ignite curiosity. Mere information and facts rarely do this. And here's why. Scientists are finding out that the human mind deals only in narrative. Or in other words, stories. No wonder why Jesus taught eternal truths using parables. He knew that the human mind understands and remembers truth when it is wrapped up in a story. The mind remembers information much better when emotions are stirred and connections are made. It is just becoming a scientific fact. This is how the human mind understands and remembers. The human soul is multifaceted. And when the heart and the mind are both involved, we remember and we change from the inside out. This is so vital that Heavenly Father teaches parents this principle in the scriptures. He says in Matthew 7, For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Our children are asking for bread. They crave it. They want nourishing food for their mind and their spirit. But how often do we give them a stone? Over the past couple of years, the cost for website hosting, email marketing, and creating a podcast has increased a lot. I decided a while ago that I would never run ads on my podcast or site, which leaves me with only a couple of options to pay for the expenses that comes with running a site and podcast. I've decided that Patreon would be the best option for listeners to support the podcast as well as receive exclusive content. If you are interested in supporting this podcast and becoming a member of Patreon, you can join for $5 a month and receive exclusive bonus content like extra articles, mini episodes, and more. I truly believe that parenting is the most difficult yet the most important job in the world and parents deserve the knowledge and the skills that require them to be the best parent they can be without costing an arm and a leg. So being able to run this podcast ad free without it being a financial burden on my family is very important to me. If you are enjoying this podcast and it has helped you, please consider becoming a Patreon member. I'm also so excited to be able to offer more content beyond what is in the podcast episode. So, if you are interested, the link is in my description. Okay, so you're convinced that you need to use living ideas to teach children, but how do you do this? It's kind of hard in our world that is so fixated on facts and brief information that I feel like we've kind of forgotten the art of teaching and using stories. So I'm going to use another analogy back to body and the food. I know you're probably getting tired of it, but there is, again, just so much richness that comes with using a metaphor and even story. So here we go. In the 1920s a chicago pediatrician conducted an unprecedented study in nutrition for six years clara m davis oversaw an experiment in which children were offered a variety of foods and then allowed to eat whatever they wanted the children aged 6 to 11 months were housed in an orphanage and selected for the study because they were just weaned and had no previous experience with food which means no prejudice or Um, favoritism, I guess. So the infants were set in front of 34 bowls. Each bowl carried a different food in it, and they're all nutritious foods ranging from oranges, cod liver oil, beef, spinach, and oatmeal, just to name a few. I'm going to provide a link in the podcast description to that study, and you can see all 34 foods that were offered if you're interested So from the selections offered, the 15 infants created 15 different eating patterns. Every diet differed from every other diet, Davis said, and not one diet was the predominantly cereal and milk diet with smaller supplements of fruit, eggs, and meat that is commonly thought proper for this age. The children's tastes changed unpredictably, and they often chose strange combination of foods, such as a pint of orange juice and liver for breakfast, or eggs, bananas, and milk for supper. Yet, despite the unorthodox meal choices, the children all managed to piece together a nutritious diet. In fact, it went down to the perfect ratio of protein, carbohydrates, and fats. Even though they all chose different foods, they found that the children chose a well-rounded diet she said that they achieved the goal but by widely different means like the lives of the happy the annals of the healthy and vigorous make little exciting news davis said there were no failures of infants to manage their own diets all had hearty appetites all thrived The first, and this is what I thought was most interesting, is the first infant to enter the study had a severe case of rickets, which is a disease of vitamin D deficiency. And he was offered cod liver oil along with other food selections. He took it irregularly and in varying amounts, Davis said, until his rickets had healed them and he never ate it again which is I find super interesting, is that card liver oil has high amounts of vitamin D and other nutrients that would heal his rickets, and that he ate it until he didn't need it anymore. Although this study is not perfect and it leaves some unanswered questions, I think it teaches a couple of important principles that are both applicable to the body and the mind. First, the parent's responsibility is to provide a variety of healthy foods at mealtime a feast as Charlotte Mason would say. Second, the child's responsibility is to choose what to eat and how much. Third, parents should trust the child's intuition and appetite to eat according to their needs. Again, this is when the parent is providing nutritious food, not just letting their children choose whatever they want from the grocery store, which will probably be junk food. So think of formal lesson time, whether that's in your home or at school or at co-op. Think of this formal lesson time as meal time. Parents and educators are responsible to provide a variety of life-giving subjects for the children to learn from. The children's, children are in charge for what knowledge that they internalize and how much they internalize. If children aren't hungry, in other words curious and eager to learn then maybe we need to stop feeding them junk food between meals boredom like hunger is a great way to instill a desire to eat and learn i have found that the more that my boys are on screens or play games anything that is just easy entertainment they are much less likely to sit and read a book doing the harder work just like if i give them lots of snacks crackers fruit snacks a lot of these easy um, tasty treats in between meals they're a lot less likely to want to eat because they're full so one more analogy before we move on when dealing with the mind the traditional method is to make a list of topics and facts that we must that must be learned at certain grades we break down interesting knowledge into dry facts and then force children to memorize these facts by rewarding or punishing them. Then we administer very specific worksheets and multiple choice quizzes to ensure that they remember the exact things that we want them to know. So think about it. If we, what if we did the same thing to children's meal time and bodily health? So we would make a list of nutrients they needed on a daily basis and at certain ages since it's difficult to ensure that they're getting enough through whole foods which are a little more unpredictable we'd probably replace real food with supplements so we know exactly how much the child is getting of each nutrient when the child complains that the food is gross which it probably is we'd find ways of forcing them to eat it either through rewards or punishments when they say they aren't hungry we would force them to take the pills because we know better than them. Then we'd evaluate our success by the nutrient levels on blood tests that we would take regularly. What if we took this approach with food? Do you think children would have a healthy relationship with it? Would they enjoy mealtime? Do you think that they'd actually have healthy strong bodies? I personally don't think so. But what if If we fed the mind like we do the body. By providing a variety of interesting subjects on a daily basis. Allowing children's minds to take in what they're craving to know at that time. Then giving them time to digest what they've learned. Most importantly, trusting their mind to take in the knowledge that it needs at that stage of life. Instead of testing them on exact facts we want them to know we ask them to tell us what they've learned and remembered from their lessons. We'd evaluate the effectiveness of their education, not by their ability to output exact facts, but by their overall mental vitality. In other words, their capacity to understand ideas from the reading, to formulate questions, and their ability to synthesize new knowledge to previous knowledge. We would look at the overall health of their mind and instead of trying to suck out these facts that we think are most important. How we present knowledge is just as important as what we provide. Instead of compelling, we should invite and entice. In a remarkable talk on teaching called "Hungering, Thirsting, and Teaching by Theo McKean, he says All that the teacher does should be inviting to the student. He quotes the Savior in Alma and says, Come unto me, and ye shall partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Yea, ye shall eat and drink of the bread and the waters of life freely. Since we as teachers should invite but not compel, the nature of our invitation becomes exceedingly important, especially when the student isn't seeking as much as he should be. Our message must be both inviting and enticing. We cannot force a child to learn, but we can awaken that desire within him by making what we teach interesting and valuable to him. Our teachings should be seasoned with items of interest to our students, much like our food should be seasoned to make it palatable and interesting. Jesus didn't teach his disciples eternal truths by stating them outright as dry facts and then asking them to regurgitate them on a test or like a worksheet. He taught living ideas through parables and then asked his disciples open-ended questions to ensure that they understood. Charlotte Mason, who was a true disciple of Jesus Christ, recommended the same method, teach through narratives or stories. My favorite way to teach virtue and eternal truth is through well-written books, especially the scriptures, family history, family history and stories from my life my parents life on our mistakes and our successes teach our children so much and make us more relatable they are true living ideas and the last is real objects and things so when children are going to learn so much more from a real tadpole and a frog than from pictures or a diagram of it it's going to be much more living because it is actually living in regards to daily lessons charlotte advised that children's lesson lessons should provide material for their mental growth they should exercise the several powers of the mind it should furnish them with fruitful ideas and should afford them knowledge really valuable for its own sake Accurate and interesting, of the kind that the child may recall as a man with profit and pleasure. And I think it's interesting that both Charlotte Mason and Theo McKean mentioned that what we present to our children should be really valuable and interesting. And we can really gauge if it isn't based on our child's appetite for knowledge there are many subjects in the feast that charlotte mason recommends and it can truly feel overwhelming at first glance but from my experience it's totally doable and actually breathes life into your school children are much more excited when there are a variety of subjects on the menu each day but only a few subjects are scheduled each day and some are only once a week So here's a list for six to nine-year-olds, which is called Form 1. Handwriting and copywork, math, recitation, physical exercise, and scripture study. Those are all subjects that are scheduled every day. And then the following are anywhere from two times a week to uh, four times a week. Singing, history, literature, nature study, artist study, composer study, poetry, drawing lessons, handicrafts. And a subject that I have introduced is this technology because children in the 18 and 1900s did not do technology. They did more handicrafts. So as um, a new subject, I introduced my boys to technology. So when kids turn 10, they go into form two and they introduce some new subjects so copy work is replaced with dictation then they add science citizenship plutarch and shakespeare and all of them except science are only once a week so pretty simple although it doesn't seem simple it does seem like quite a list why in the world would a parent try to teach so many subjects we don't know which subjects will appeal to our individual children. Many kids are bored or fail in school because math and language arts are just not their thing. You may have a child that has a gift or passion for music, art, or the natural world. As parents and educators, it's our responsibility to introduce many subjects so our children can discover what passions and talents they have. A variety of subjects nurtures appetite. Can you imagine eating the same three foods every day for years? You would lose your appetite. At least I would. I would not look forward to mealtime. The same goes for the mind. I found that my kids look forward to lessons each day when our schedule has some variety. We have the same basic subjects every day, like I mentioned math and copywork, but the content-based subjects change every other day, with some subjects only coming up once a week. And my kids look forward to those days if it's a subject that they enjoy. And the third reason that we have a variety is that the brain can get exhausted when using only one part of the brain for extended periods of time. Again, back to a body analogy. Imagine if we only exercised our biceps or glutes every day. Only those parts of the body. They would get tired quickly and our workouts would be pretty short. Not only that, but our body would be disproportionate and it could actually cause problems. The same goes for the brain. Using the language part of our brain for too long causes exhaustion. Using the perceptual or another part of the brain related to math, if we use that one for too long, it becomes tired. And you can see this when kids start to daydream, can't pay attention, get irritable, their brain is telling them, okay, I'm done, I'm full, or I'm tired. Lessons should be kept short and varied, so different parts of the brain are used and not exhausted. So let's recap the big ideas I discussed in this episode. First, the mind, like the body, is alive and it needs nourishment and exercise. It's not a vessel or a sack we fill, but a living organism that feeds and grows and matures. The mind feeds on ideas, not information or dry facts. The educator's responsibility is to provide a feast of living ideas And the student is in charge of what they remember and how much. Curiosity, or in other words, an appetite for knowledge, is born out of a variety of living ideas. And the best source for living ideas are real things in their natural environment and well-written books. You can find this episode's show notes as well as more information about this topic on our website, www.simplewonders.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and or rating the podcast. Or even better, share it with friends or family. If you'd like to further support our work here, you can donate by clicking the link in our profile. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to discuss our next topic. Until then, go out and work some wonders.